Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. It's good to be back. Just a quick preview as to what's to come. Jules and I had a uh, very interesting discussion on Kevin Rudd, Australia's former Prime Minister's recent appearance in the Senate, where he asks for an investigation into the Murdoch media monopoly. It's a juicy and wide-ranging discussion, uh, especially towards the end there where we touch on some related topics, which we had a lot of fun discussing. So uh, all in all, we hope you enjoy the discussion as much as we did. They're still not allowing touring in Australia. Uh, you can, you can, no, you can tour, but like it's just a massive head fuck because, you know, everything gets derailed and you might get yeah. stuck in a different part of the country and not, <laughs> not, not be allowed to go home. Yeah. Like. Ant had a trip planned to Noosa and he, he went last week and he was meant to go with a couple of different couples and they just bailed last minute because they just, like, didn't want to get stuck there. I think one of the girls was pregnant. And just understandably didn't want to get stuck in Noosa, stranded while she was pregnant. In Canada, Europe, America, I'm sure, like, it's looked at as, like, oh, this is this amazing post-COVID place. And then I hear the stories from all my Australian friends, see the Australian media, like, people are just being stranded from their homes. <laughs> this complete dichotomy in uh, in media. Have you been? Yeah. But you've been traveling. You were in Tasmania. I was in Tasmania. Yeah, I mean, I had free free accommodation. You know, if I got stuck there, I would have had a nice bedroom to myself. And yeah, in, in Ned's new North Hobart Palace. Um, <laughs> so that made it, yeah, more comfortable. I was less nervous about getting stuck there. But the COVID thing, JobKeeper is about to end, and I just don't understand how. All the live music venues are gonna fucking survive. Like I just, I do not understand. So, how many people also, can have at a live music venue? The CBDs, all the CBD venues, and are still closed. Fucking cafes and all this shit. They're just gonna like the as this job keeper thing approaches. You know, all these musicians that were previously touring and gigging and getting paid all these festivals. All these people who serviced festivals and yeah, you know, all the lighting guys. All this, like, you know, there's just the amount of work that is in the music industry compared to what there was and the scale of those events is so fucking small. I just don't understand how JobKeeper can... Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen to all these people. Yeah. Did you see what Texas did? Just did completely ripped off the band-aid. They're like, all right, fuck it. No masks, no mask mandate. We're a hundred percent open. This was a couple really? of weeks ago. They had, yeah, they had. <clears throat> the reasoning was they had more than more than fifty percent of people above the age of sixty-five who had already been vaccinated, and they're like, "All right, well, anyone who's going to use the hospital, well, most of the people who are going to use the hospital should be fine now. So let's just rip it off." And then all these comedians, uh, like, like live performers, they all have like shows in Texas now. Everyone in, all, all like the creators have. Been booking shows in Texas, and it, it's surprising that like Melbourne didn't do that. They didn't Rip just say bands like, off, no, yeah, and just well, be like problem- you know, like like let 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 creatives make money again. 
Look, I think they're waiting. <coughs> yeah, I'm sure that they're, they're waiting for a vaccine. The problem is, you know, if they're like one, you know, one fuck up at hotel quarantine, which is of course, you know, bound to happen with the uh, incredible professionalism of our state bureaucracy, you know, and that that fucker goes to, you know, I don't know, a big room and bang, you know, everyone's got COVID and, you know, the- Yeah. Instead of being, you know- It's a real trade-off, eh? And now any any case higher than zero means you're basically locked down till you're back to zero. So yeah. assume, we assume see like, that. <laughs> Do you know how funny it is? Have chats with my parents. They're like, "Oh, how's COVID going in Canada?" You're like, "Yeah, we're going really well. We're about to enter stage three of our reopen phase." How many cases do you have? Oh, we still get like 500 cases a day. <laughs> it's just like they have a fucking heart attack. Like what? 500 cases? Like that's really low. You know, like that's uh, that's a green light for us. It's a completely different strategy. Yeah. Well, and. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's definitely, you know, I'm sure the last four months of li- of living here have been way better than your last four months. So, you know, but then we well, had yeah. six months. They have. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but then, you know, we had, at least in Melbourne, we had, you know, six months of utter hell. So. Yeah. Well, I think ideal is Taiwan, right? No lockdown, no real change of reality. Queensland, they really haven't really had a lockdown bar from the first one. Had like a minor one, but anyway, Jules, <laughs> the 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 man Rados has been back in the news. Did you catch his appearance in the Senate? I did. I I was avoiding doing work and watched all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I'm a bit late because I think that was three weeks ago. I also did a podcast on that about two months ago, and that was um. But, like, it's my podcast, so we get to talk about whatever we want. But, yeah, he's back. He's asked for a royal commission. Probably not, definitely not going to get a royal commission. We got some type of Senate inquiry. He was in it. He was fielding questions from people from all parties. He was talking about this cancer on democracy, also known as Rupert Murdoch. So, I mean, he, he's back. He, he's he's looking good with the beard, hey? <laughs> with the, uh, the Gandalf beard. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts on how you thought about his uh, his presentation of, of his case? What do you make of it? Yeah, I reckon I'm nervous about, about Murdoch and I'm nervous about the incredibly strong link there seems to be between Scott Morrison and this Liberal government and, and Murdoch. I... I find Murdoch's alignment to the resources industry and just general, you know, whoever's got a a concern around climate reform. And I find that the power that he wields and leverages, particularly in parts of the country that have more swinging voters, to be... uh, to be a worry, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I guess I had a good chat with Ned about this as well. It's like, what's the appropriate, like, it's one thing to say, and we can talk about this, you know, A, is there actually a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and then B, if there is a problem, is there any actual solution that's acceptable, you know, and that's kind of, that's a little bit more complicated than if there is a problem or not. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the problem as Rudd sees it, so it, I kind of touched on that when I did the, the Murdoch episode, but he basically has like four claims. The first one is that Murdoch has 70% print ownership. The second claim being that, you know, the last 18 out of the 18 federal and state elections, Murdoch papers all, all, all endorse the Liberal Party. Claim three being that he he has loss making newspapers to maximize political power. So it's not really like a, a, a commercial enterprise. It's a, a political enterprise. And claim number four is that uh, his, his journalists engage in bullying behavior and they can essentially uh, castigate and <clears throat> shame any po- politician who dares take a different opinion from, um, from Murdoch and uh, essentially leading them into silence. And and that's how he wields political power. So that I mean, like, all in all, uh, you know, when I look at Kevin Rudd presenting, I'm kind of like nodding my head ninety percent of the time. But then I'm like, ah, oh, but I do, there's something about what he's saying that I don't a hundred percent agree with. And then when I look at like Murdoch apologists, the people on the right who who like have their views and they say that you know it's sour grapes on the part of Rudd, and you know he's just salty that um, Murdoch didn't give him a fair hearing at like you know the end of his prime ministership, and and you know talking about it as, as if there's no problem. I think to myself, ah, uh, y- you know you're kind of wrong as well. Like I, the, there's some type of middle ground which I think we'll get to where like I, I think everyone everyone all the positions that have been canvassed in the debate now are kind of wrong. So. I mean, the first one is like, you know, a claim of 70% print ownership. So, in and of itself, you'd say that's pretty worrying, Jules? Yeah. Yeah. And Rudd fleshing that out was uh, persuasive when he spoke about how print media dictates the mainstream media narrative. So let me toss something up at you. I find the overall premise that, you know, the greater your percentage of media concentration, the greater political power. You know, if you, if you, if you put it on a spectrum and you had one newspaper and you're in uh, CCP China where they can essentially control the press and you only have one voice, that's bound to be a problem. Then on the other side of the spectrum, if you had, you know, just independence, you know, thousands of different voices uh, maybe it's also another kind of problem because everyone operates in this their own echo chamber and there's no sense of shared reality. So there's probably like somewhere in the middle of those, which is probably healthy for a democracy, which is at least Kevin Rudd's goal. So, I mean, um, 70% ownership, th- like the thing I wanted to push back against you is like, firstly, it's not really 70% ownership because he does this thing where he says print ownership. So it's true that in new print newspapers, Murdoch might own 70%. But if you look at the whole media landscape, you include radio, TV and everything like that. It's more closer to like around about 60%, but still 60%. But the other thing I try to understand is, is it in and of itself wrong if it's just a newspaper that's better able to connect with readers who buy that? Right. If genuinely sixty percent of Australians like Murdoch papers, what's the problem? I, I well, instinctively, I've sort of got two two arguments. First would be, you know, couldn't you say the same thing about any monopoly? You know, and you know, you mm-hmm. could say, oh well, you know, a, a monopoly that's able to squeeze its suppliers uh, is better for the consumers. Because they can, you know, so you could argue Coles and Woolies do a great That's job an of driving. That's argument that people driving. do make, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That you know, so and then you'd say, well, 
it's not enough that it's not acceptable that uh, Coles and Woolies drive prices down. Yes, it's good for consumers because milk ends up super cheap, but this right. is really an unfair consequence because the market power has meant dairy farmers go broke, as an example, right? So right. I'd say that um, that's the first thing. I think a monopoly is that pa- someone gets burnt somewhere along the chain. Might mm-hmm. not be the direct consumer, but someone gets burnt when there's a monopoly and, and an unfair level of power. Yeah. And secondly, I'd say, and this is a little bit more abstract, but people's level of agency is not that high in mm. regards to media and news. And I feel like people's attachment to reading the paper is a cultural internalization and a historical like internalization. And it is it's like and this might what this might mean, you know, this might not this argument doesn't necessarily mean that it's acceptable for the government to intervene but it's like media has this really important responsibility in establishing common facts and you know holding important institutions to account Mm. and i feel like if you're if you live in queensland and there's you know the only newspapers that exist are, are murdoch papers yeah and you're someone who likes to buy the paper yeah like uh, what I'd say back to you, Rob, is like it's not that these people love necessarily Murdoch newspapers. Right. It's that they just like buying the newspaper. And he's at the moment he's he's the only one who's got this endless amount of cash to continue to uh, lose money on on this failing mm-hmm. industry, but to maintain control of those people's uh, opinions and and uh, and political views. Yeah. So the first one about the monopoly, do we do we like having someone with such significant market power? The answer is like it really depends how they use that market power. So the the test the ACCC would have is you can have market power, it's okay, we want you to be successful and we're not gonna we're not gonna criminalize someone for becoming Amazon just because they're that big. Um, there are actually even some benefits of having someone like Amazon in terms of efficiencies and consumer welfare and you get things for cheap. And, you know, for goodness sake, like last week <laughs> I ordered something and it was it, like it literally arrived in an hour. Um, so, you know, there's there's something about scale that's actually really, really nice. Um, but it becomes an issue when they misuse that power and the ACCC is looking at that and you could make a case that they're not aggressive enough in pursuing these monopolies. But I think one thing that's important to stress is when they do talk about media concentration in the digital platforms inquiry a couple of years ago, that's the, the, you know this inquiry that the ACCC undertook this huge report, but it was in the title was the problem, the digital platform inquiry. So for the ACCC, at least in their eyes, a person who has a much greater uh, potential misuse of monopoly power are Google and Facebook. So that's where their attention is focused. So complaining about a Murdoch monopoly when you have a much bigger monopoly, and if you even look at the stats and like, you know, the amount of information that's controlled online, at least something like 70% of that is through Facebook and Google, and Murdoch has a tiny fraction of that. So I would say that they would consider Murdoch to be a problem if they weren't bigger fish to fry. Second point you raised is that, you know, the cultural phenomenon of like buying a paper. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I 
like I agree with you, but then I would also push back and I would say it's only relevant insofar as this of that cultural institution remains relevant, which I think is a dying industry. So I think a criticism of Rudd would be, yeah, you've kind of identified a really bad problem, which is that, you know, people, they love papers. And if they only have one paper, then they're going to naturally gravitate towards a political view of the editor. But there's a much, there's a shrinking share of people who are actually engaging in that cultural phenomenon. So I, I, I would say that like the market is naturally correcting against that. And if you look at someone like Friendly Geordies, independent, left-leaning YouTuber, has like half a million subscribers, that's almost on par with the greatest print readership in Australia, which is the Australian, like just above, you know, 500,000. Uh, yeah, 500,000. So like, yes, a problem, but is it Armageddon and is the market already kind of correcting for that in a digital world where that traditional media landscape is crumbling? I would say yes. Yeah. So I, I like, I, I agree with all of that. I guess the, 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 the only other thing I'd add is Rudd talking about how print media is able to dictate narratives across the media landscape. Mm-hmm. And I think part of his analysis was, that mainstream television basically pick up the major stories from the newspapers. Yeah. And that also the major newspapers are able to create a cycle of content and follow-up content. Yeah. That is that ultimately a lot of these independent, more independent media participate in. Mm. So it's like, they, even though they're not um, necessarily being viewed by a lot, they're actually controlling. Uh, yeah, and, and dictating they don't a even lot of the need narrative. to sell one hundred percent of the papers, but they'll get to shape one hundred percent of the papers because they they go first. And they, well, and not they go even first. the papers. The, the oh, point is the, the whole landscape. television, yeah, the yeah. whole landscape. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I think, I think that's a strong argument. But I would say doesn't. Wouldn't that always exist? Like, wouldn't you always have, you'd always have one person that's going to have slightly greater market share than someone else. And isn't isn't that almost like a, a position that you inherently occupy if you're the biggest? You get to, you, you know, if you're the biggest, you probably have the highest amount of contacts with political insiders. Uh, political insiders also probably want to talk to you first because you have the biggest and just as a natural result of being the most dominant media firm, you get that ability. So it's almost, it's a problem, but it's also something that every media organization signs up for when they enter the industry. And I, I mean, I, I think we're going to get to that. It's like, it's like a problem, but what do you do with it? That's like the question. So yeah, I mean, you're always going to have someone who dominates a market and by virtue of them dominating, they're always going to set the agenda. How do you, how do you even begin to address that? Well, for starters, like you know, I you know, should Channel Nine have been able to buy Fairfax, right? And you know, should should Murdoch have been able to buy all that associated, yeah, uh, press, whatever it was called, the- yeah. And interesting, the, the whole the whole rural newspapers and all that. And interesting tidbit: when um, Murdoch in the late eighties was given permission by Hawke Keating for the merger, um, that he bought 
he bought one of one of Fairfax old papers in Melbourne, right? And funnily enough, Haw- um, Keating allowed it on the grounds that he thought uh, Murdoch represented this new money that was going to get rid of these old um, these old interests, these like old Melbourne money interests that were controlling Fairfax at the time. So he actually saw Murdoch as this reinvigorating force in media. And it's just interesting to note that because that was only what, three decades ago, and now Murdoch has been seen as, like, the old, you know, uh, stale interests that are kind of dominating. So, you know, there there was, there there has been some activity and some, like, reshuffling of the deck in terms of who controls what in in media over time. Yeah, and, like, hope, you know, and and you'd expect it to continue to shift, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, important independent people, or, or... all of that's a, a, a positive thing. Before we talk about how you solve this problem, if there is a problem, I think there's two other ways of, of framing it mm. that are more favorable to Rudd's perspective. The first is framing it from the position of two, the two prime ministers, so Scott Morrison, not Scott Morrison, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Malcolm Turnbull. Turnbull. Yeah. So obviously a Labour and a Liberal Prime Minister, both saying that they felt dictated to by the power of Murdoch. Mm. You know, and in in the case of uh, Malcolm Turnbull, explicitly. Right. That's. So so, you can say, oh, is it a problem? So you know, the question becomes pretty simple there. Is it a problem that prime ministers feel like uh, they can't implement the policies they want because of one particularly important person mm. in the country? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. This is something where I'm like, Rod, <laughs> you got me. That was a good point. I, I can't. You can't deny the fact that if you have if you have multiple prime ministers. Uh, feeling like the the existence of their prime ministership, the legitimacy of their prime ministership lasts on what one media mogul thinks. And on top of that, people would tell me I'm a conspiracy theorist if I said that, did you realize that the conversation of two billionaires determined f- who would be Australia's prime minister, as happened with the phone call between Kerry Stokes and Rupert Murdoch in 2018, I believe, when uh, Turnbull had to step down or could have been earlier than that. But when Turnbull had to step down, there was like it's been reported and it's been it's been verified that there was a conversation that took place between two media mogul billionaires that after a week led to a different prime minister. If you didn't know any better, you'd say you'd say, Rob, you're a fucking crackpot. Like, you know, you assigned way too much value to conspiracies. But that did happen, right? Yeah. And that's Australia, one of the most advanced democracies in the world. We had a phone call between two rich media mogul billionaires that determined who was our prime minister. And am I oversimplifying that? I don't think so, cuz you, you can and then this is and this is my broader point. And this this maybe speaks to the dysfunctional nature of politics all around the world, but yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Australia has become a non-reform like enterprise, certainly mm. at least with, with at least with the federal government. So yeah, there's mm. probably been, you know, and any time any major lobby group has wanted to defeat uh, 
a policy, a significant policy change in Australia, right. it, 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 get, it gets defeated. So, yeah. you know, the way that the way that the way that, the, you know, this is this is old politics for some people now. We're probably really old, Rob. My sister and stuff wouldn't know anything about this probably, but <laughs> when Kevin... My sister Kevin, better be listening to this. <laughs> she, she, she's really into politics, year 12 politics, but uh, Steph, you better old. be listening, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen to two, two straight white cis men talk. We're, we're all, we're, we're, it's None all of this, that on this podcast. <laughs> this, this discussion is inherently invalid. Anyway. <laughs> but in all seriousness... her contemporaries, but go on. So Kevin Rudd, you know, wants to implement a mining reform, carbon emissions reform, and this absolute juggernaut of lobby yeah. groups just smashes it to bits. And you know, then <clears throat> Julia Gillard later on, as part of uh, her agreement with the with those independents to form government, was compelled through that agreement to implement Pokey's reform. Mm-hmm. Smashed. So. You know, the question is, why do these? Why does the lobby groups that Murdoch? Why is Murdoch always? It doesn't seem like Murdoch's able to get state liberal governments elected, but he does seem to be able to destroy policy. Federal labor, you know? yeah. He does seem to destroy policy, and whether it's whether it's whether it's federal whether it's liberal policy, Turnbull hoping to do something on the environment. Right. Hoping to do something on reform, smashed. You know, mm-hmm. so I, 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 I see Murdoch Press and its alignment to big corporations being uh, a problem. But then, yeah. you know, the the thing is, it seems to be a bigger problem when it's just one media entity. But the truth is, right, that ultimately. Because money is held inside these big corporations, they could still exercise the same level of control over the media and have the media galvanize over their lobbying simply by being significant advertisers across a more diverse media landscape. Which is to say that media is inherently propagandist and it's always going to be leveraged by... <clears throat> big money-making corporations to stifle policy reform that isn't in their interests. Yeah, that's just always going to be the case. So, I yeah, I, yeah, d- yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And it was good that you you closed off that point because for a second there, I was going to say, is it is it Murdoch in and of itself? And Murdoch's power in and of itself that determines the fact that there's, you know, weak action on climate change, no action, uh, according to some. Uh, if there's, you know, all, all these policy measures that aren't being put forward. And a, and a counterpoint is because Rudd always cites that, you know, New Zealand and Canada of the five eyes are the two countries where Murdoch doesn't operate and they have much more progressive policy. But to which I would say, you know, I'm living in Alberta, Canada, and like to push forward on environmental regulation is very fucking difficult. And it's very fucking difficult because so many working class interests are tied to uh, oil and gas here in Alberta. This, you know, richest province in Canada, oil and gas, not going to bode well for the province if we completely switch away from fossil fuels. But, 
you know, the fact that we we kind of go back and forth in Alberta on the carbon tax, yes, carbon tax, no carbon tax, we don't get clear green policy in, in the province is not because we have a Murdoch. It's just because a lot of interests are also tied up with that. And so I, th- I think that was a good point, which is that, you know, by definition of companies existing, uh, this is like a point that Noam Chomsky makes in like the um, the propaganda model is if you always have big corporations uh, which fund the media, there's always going to be a pro-business bias in whatever the media produces because if they don't, if they write something um, unfavorable and they do that time and time again, well, people are going to stop advertising and there's going to be um, there's going to be a drying up of funds. And ultimately, these are for-profit entities and these media organizations depend on some type of business to keep them going. So, yeah, like I think I think you raise a good point. Is it? in and of itself Murdoch or is it always going to be a problem if you have for-profit media? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like, you know, if anyone's, you know, that thoughtful piece of analysis you've presented is totally congruent with what happens in Australia. Compare Australia's current climate position to that of the the Conservative Party in Britain. Yeah. The Conservative Party in Britain nearly 10 years ago was I think maybe longer than 10 years ago, was participating in significant climate change reform, emissions trading right. schemes, et cetera. Right. What's the, most, what's the obvious reason that Australia can't take a functional climate policy emissions trading position in Australia? We're one big fucking huge hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like there's yeah. just way too much money made here in pillaging <laughs> yeah. and exploiting the environment. And ultimately... I agree with you, Rob. It's the money made, not necessarily Murdoch, but Murdoch's is conduit, right? Yeah. And I guess what Rudd would say is that Murdoch is A, a conduit for the interests of big business, as any media organization would be. But then because he's consolidated things so, so intensely, he's also able to exercise his own political will and his own political preferences. Yeah. And that's where it's like- uh, yeah, that's where it's difficult, you know, and it's 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 a tough problem. Yeah. I yeah, you know, I, I think um, I I think we tied a bow on that uh, pretty well. But I mean, there is there is this other point which we kind of mentioned in passing about, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned. You know, is it much of a concern if we're talking about an industry which is largely dying anyway? So, you know, consolidation is a is a is an inevitable byproduct of any shrinking industry, right? If uh, if, if an industry is shrinking up, there are less profits to be made. People going out of business, bigger companies will buy those smaller companies uh, and consolidate to like you know salvage whatever's left. So, like, how do you feel about that general shift in media that's taking place? Which might exacerbate the 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 uh, percentage of ownership, and Murdoch might seem to have more and more. But if it is a shrinking share of an industry that's becoming increasingly irrelevant, I'll give everyone a, an example. So, I read the other the other week a book by Marshall McLuhan, and he was talking about he was talking about media in the 1800s in the states and how the very first newspaper when it started out, had a uh, print circulation of one edition a month, right? 
it felt that the first first newspaper in the states felt that it could only produce enough news to fill up one print edition a month, right? Now, if you were to extrapolate that forward, in other words, what we're saying is 29 out of 30 days when we get newspaper, when we get updates, when we get anything that we're consuming is total BS. The, the media industry has been selling has been uh, selling entertainment packaged as news. So, like, like, we're treating it as if, like, the industry in itself has largely been serious, but it's largely been a joke, and it's probably been a joke for a long time. And, I mean, maybe it's... It's a it's a repackaged joke now that looks kind of a little bit stupid, but like we're being so serious about an industry that doesn't really give us fucking, you know, informational nourishment to begin with. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, and and that's that I mean ultimately like you know, when I've spoken about this and when I've thought about it harder and when I I took some reflection after listening to Kevin Rudd speak, it was while he's really persuasive and while it's very tempting to hate the hell out of Murdoch and you probably should, (laughs) it ultimately it's the dysfunctional nature between human beings, propaganda and whatever this idea of what media is that creates the climate for, 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 for this to happen because ultimately yeah, most media is, is, is a piss take. And yeah. really the exciting thing about the, uh, the information age mm-hmm. and in a way what was previously media's core responsibility, that is to report on facts, yeah. is sort of no longer necessary. It's kind of gone. Yeah. You know, if you want to know what happens in a what happens in a particular court case, you go to the you go online and you can pull yeah. up the the minutes, right? You the minutes, the transcript, you, the yeah. the live stream. Yeah, the live stream. Available. Yeah. You want to you want to find out what was discussed at the, you know, at Rio Tinto's annual board meeting? Yeah. Go online, you pull up the minutes. Uh, yeah. You want to know what what a certain business is doing and what they've decided to action you can probably just go on their twitter account or their facebook page or yeah or their their own internal website i mean everyone's able to now publish information stream information live it's there and people's ability to, to lie about things is now infinitely diminished because you know you, you might you know 50 years ago you might publish something yeah that was a lie and then you know it might only be found to be a lie uh, maybe a couple of weeks later and then it takes how long to let everyone know that it was a lie or whatever now if you lie it can be anyone who knows can so quickly call it out and let the whole world know that um, you can't really lie anymore so yeah it seems to me that yeah yeah go on it seems to me that as we've now got this direct relationship we've now got sorry this direct access to facts and information yeah from from direct sources, that core responsibility of media needing to deliver facts <laughs> it's to kind everyone. Of comical, right? <laughs> well, it's kind of gone. Like you, you yeah. could argue, I've thought about this a little bit. You could argue that, well, it's unrealistic to expect people with full time work and children and whatever else to sit there and, you know, go 
examine a direct source document every time they want to know something about what's happening. Right. So you could say, so media then becomes this summary, like modern media is like this summary of facts. Yeah. Right. So it's like, and this summary of what happened in the court case, because you're not going to read the whole minutes and the summary of what happened in the board meeting or the summary of what happened in the Senate inquiry and what happened in parliament, et cetera. So you could say, okay, so media is now becoming less about here's what happened more about here's like a summary of what happened. And in that opportunity or in that function lies an opportunity for media to be again, deceptive and biased and whatever else. But ultimately we're in such a good position to, to do more of this stuff ourselves. I think we need to acknowledge how much media is just this dysfunctional, you know, crappy entertainment. Yeah, totally. Two points on that. So, yeah, the first is that Julian Assange, like, would say that all commentary is censorship. That's his 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 kind of point, and like the underlying premise of of WikiLeaks is that you don't need anyone to to tell you exactly what a source document meant when you can just fucking read the document. There's that point, and then the second point is that I couldn't agree more with like the idea that there's this growing irrelevance of like the the inherent need of media so there's this uh there's this great new book a lot of people have been talking about it in um kind of like i don't know tech circles is uh the revolts of the public and the crisis of authority by martin gurry he's he's an ex-cia analyst and he would say that like you know institutions institutions have completely lost any any grasp of reality that's by Public trust uh, in politicians is like at a historical low. There's just no way to know anything because back when he was a CIA analyst back in the you know the 80s and 90s, if he wanted to learn what the opinion in France of a particular US policy was, he would go to two newspapers, the two most trusted newspapers in France. He would look at the editorial board. He would say, yes, policy is favorable, not favorable. And he would report back and the CA would use this. He said at the point at which the internet became democratized, freely available, there's a complete lack of legitimacy in anything that he would report that comes from the editorial board because the public, there's such a, there's such a, um, a demarcation between what the public actually thinks and believes and what the editorial board is spinning. And then a third point on that is that, you know, I think if you look at if you look at the 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 revenue source in media organizations, typically they were funded by Classifield ads, right? They would they would fund uh, yeah exactly they would they would they would fund a large portion of the revenue that a media organization would make, and they could run all the other articles from that. Now, if you're looking for an ad, you're not going to a newspaper. You're going to if you're looking for a job, you go to Seek. Uh, if you want to find something online, you go to Marketplace, eBay, whatever. You there are all these other places where those that industry is gone, and it's completely crippled any any well, one the revenue source. And but what it's also done, it's freed up a lot of the paper to be selling editorial opinion. So now you know previously where you'd get like all these news reports and maybe one page on an editorial board. If you go to the New York Times website on the right hand side, they have their like twenty columnists. And they produce a lot of the value that people are getting. And it's just opinions of, you know, kind of a lot of the times elitist, snooty, pretentious people who live in New York, right? Culture wars. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, okay. So because information's now so much better circulated, you're saying that media's intensified its editorial divisions and basically it has, become, it has, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean that makes sense. And again, it's like I mean you know I don't read <laughs> much, but I, I, uh, <clears throat> if I'm going to consume some content. You know, the absolute last place I ever want to spend time doing is watching the news, right? Or, yeah. Or reading the newspaper. Like, right. You know, like, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, I, like, unless, unless I want to work out how, you know, what, what, what's the big fucking lie today? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't I waste hate my time. I the newspaper. <laughs> I read it to, to, to see but, how but that's, idiotic, like, some opinions are being packaged. And. And this is why it's a good thing that this industry is dying. It's just what what's going to take its place is just, you know, it's like at the same time though. It's like what what see this, this is my concern. My concern is, and this is a little bit of culture wars, a little bit not. I don't know. Take take it or leave it. But <laughs> if we look at the the uh, seemingly successful progressive movements happening, say if we took. You know, countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, the UK, more broadly Europe, you know, the current important issues or the issues that are taking up a lot of time and we're seemingly winning. So things like you know, trans rights, gay rights, right. uh, racism, feminism, these kind of big social issues. They seem to get an amazing amount of press, be unbelievably well circulated, and you know seem to certainly have succeeded in totally transforming uh, cultural domains like music, art, movies, television. Mm-hmm. Totally shifted in like fifteen years the kind of movies you're acceptable to make now and the whole mainstream depiction of certain races and things. And right. most of that, most of that's probably a good it, thing, but, but here's what I say. Also, but it's also crazy how you can watch a movie that's just 10 years old and you can be shocked by how, you know, racist it feels or insensitive it feels, but be completely amazed that you didn't think that at all 10 years ago. Like, yeah. The so, degree, yeah. So, yeah, so whether we call so, that progress or whether we call that overreaction, maybe somewhere in the middle, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Look, I, I, you know, it's important that um, we don't treat people like shit for arbitrary reasons. So mm-hmm. I think for, for mm-hmm. most of it is cool. You know, there's the censorship and stuff that I have a problem with, and you know, I'm not don't want to get into the culture wars. But what I would say is this: we'll save a few episodes for that. <laughs> what what I'd say is that it doesn't doesn't seem to me that this massive democratization of media is resulting in anything that's aiming to challenge the amazing stockpile of wealth that a tiny part of the population mm. has. Mm. It doesn't seem to be directly instigating any kind of class warfare, mm. which, you know, because we're supposed to be entering this post-media uh, environment mm. that, you know, if you, as you were saying before, your media was inherently uh, pro-business. Pro it's like, well, why isn't this new media you know, allowing an ecology for someone like Bill Shorten and his policy agenda to succeed. Mm. Mm. Like why Why wasn't that possible? Was it because he's a, a fragmented really, way? 
I why, why, why I have is a hypothesis, it, see, but I'll, so why, I'll let you finish that point. Yeah, and I guess you could argue, well, you know, Biden's been elected or whatever. But it's like, I, I, to me, I don't. It doesn't seem to. It isn't at least anyway materializing in a culture that's super interested in taking care of the environment and destabilizing the incredible inequity and wealth that's happening in these countries. If anything, in the last 20 years, wealth inequality has grown exponentially, certainly in Australia, right? certainly in the States. So, yeah, the Western, you know, yeah. we, we, we don't like, you know, we're, we're, we're getting really good at uh, canceling people for being racist and sexist and transphobic or whatever, yeah. but we don't seem to be doing anything or doing anywhere near as well at cancelling people for environmental damage mm. and succeeding in changing the narrative around how we actually start to make society fairer and yeah. start dealing with this incredible inequity in wealth. So Yeah. I mean, in short, to quickly say, I, w- I would say a lot of those cancellations are actually a, a net negative, but I think we can get to that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can get to that um, in another episode. But I think there are... I think there are two things going on. I think the first thing is, and people might say this is like a, a Koch brothers plot or a, a Murdoch plot or whatever, but I don't have any evidence for this, but that um, social progress on so-called social or cultural issues was allowed precisely because it would it fragment it yes. would fragment the left and the constituency needed to, do, to uh, serve working class interests. But I think, and, and so whether that was deliberately done or deliberately allowed or it's just the way it evolved, I don't know. But the reason why you're unlikely to get some type of left-leaning majority in media is because it triangulates three core left-leaning interests, which are working class interests, environmental interests, and social interests. So if I was someone who was of the working class, I am not going anywhere near an outlet like BuzzFeed. Why would I? They they wouldn't really support working class interests. Political correctness actually penalizes people of the working class because they don't go to university to learn what is and what isn't acceptable thought. And 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 so you you inherently alienate people who are left leaning people. Like if I think of you you know, maybe someone like um my uncle, you know, he's been you know, a member of one of Australia's largest trade unions for his, his pretty much his entire working life. He would, I, I don't know for a fact, but he would probably vote double labor every time. But he would much prefer reading something like a Murdoch paper because he doesn't have to put up with some woke ass politics. And he also doesn't have to put up with potentially environmental regulation, which would maybe cut him out of a job or not him personally, but you can imagine someone in like an industry like mining who might be in favor of working class interests wouldn't read a left-wing outlet who's promoting environmental regulation and who's reading, who's posting stuff about wokeness. So I think there's been this, like there's this inherent, uh, this unholy trinity of left-wing interests that means you never get a sizable paper, you never get a political force that can unite people on broad-stroke left-wing interests because a lot of them tend to contradict. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that's just something whether I don't know how to solve that 
Um, I don't know like exactly what that means, and I don't know if it was like a a Coke Brothers uh, plot or a Murdoch plot or anything like that. I just know that there's this there's this inherent tension between a lot of these left leaning interests that probably doesn't allow for, as you say, like reform on inequality or working class improvements or anything like that. And and sorry, and I would say one more thing is that a lot of the people who pioneer. A lot of these woke interests, a lot of people pioneer a lot of these environmental uh, methods actually happen to not be working class and actually happen to probably benefit from a system that doesn't that doesn't uh, fight for those working class interests. These are probably people who own property. These are probably people who have some type of power and they indirectly benefit from the system. So, why would they challenge it? It's a very... That was a brilliant little summary, Rob. I... <laughs> The thing about you know you know elite interest uh, elite versus non elite uh, working class versus uh, bourgeoisie it, whatever you want to frame it as the you kind of get it in glimpses but it's very it's like a fragile fleeting story so it might be something like um, GameStop where people pretend that it's uh, working class people trading shares in their basement who are taking on hedge funds. And then you might like generate this anti-establishment energy and you might think like, oh, we're at some type of turning point. We're going to, you know, fuck over the bankers. We're going to fuck over the 1%. This t- it's time for the little man to step up. But a story like that can so easily get, you know, well, completely conflated because it actually wasn't that at all. You actually had hedge funds versus hedge funds. And a lot of the people who were benefiting from something like GameStop were actually hedge funds who were also inflating the price. So even when you get glimpses of like a story that is working class versus elites. It's always, it's, you get a little bit, you get a couple of days and it seems like this amazing turnaround. It seems like, you know, um, um, the March on Wall Street, I forget, um, Occupy Wall Street, but then it completely disappears. And is that on purpose? Is that, you know, the powerful controlling us or is that just the fact that there's no wholesome left-leaning constituency to, to, to keep up that energy? So, are we then talking about media? I brought up that point in the context of I can understand why someone like Murdoch dominates is because it's much easier to sell some type of right-wing coalition of voices, pro-business, anti-cultural issues, anti-PC, anti-environmental regulation, and get more than 50% of people to buy that paper than it is to do the inverse where you have to sell pro pro woke pro political correctness pro environmental regulation and pro working class interests i think you have this unholy trinity this unholy alliance that's always going to contradict each other and you're not going to be able to sell a paper that that satisfies all those constituencies which is why all those papers are fucking fragmented you look at like what like buzzfeed huffington post um, you know, the age, which isn't really that anymore. It's more of like a center-right paper. Like Guardian. The, the Guardian, it's like, you know, these papers are fragmented. And like, do you have like a working class paper? You don't really, because they can't really, you know, you know, unify energy and unify um, customers around that. Yeah. Crikey. Well, that's- like all these like small papers, right? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I... No, I think I think the analysis you've given is really, really important, and really accurate, and it's. I guess my question is: 
a lot of the forces that are dictating the environment you're talking about seem to stem from people, people's content and people's opinions ultimately being very self-serving. You know? mm. It's like, mm. what, what can anything, can we expect anything else other than powerful interests being able to optimize whatever media ecosystem exists right. for their own benefit in a situation where people aren't able to sit down, participate in genuine inquiry, and ultimately have care for preferences and possibilities that aren't just in their short-term best interests. You know, yeah. like working-class yeah. people not being able to get behind environmentalism because it implicates their jobs. I mean, you'd think, you'd really, really think and hope that most countries that are at least well off are in a position to help transition people into employment mm. that you know protects them from the negative consequences of the environmental change. Like surely, you know, we can subsidize most of that. You know, like money doesn't I, mean I, anything I, now, Jules. What are you talking about? Yeah, We've had I, fifty trillion pumped into the economy in the last year. Well, exactly. You can just keep everyone. Like, <laughs> we, we can't afford to keep the people who, who work at fucking. You know, there's no such thing as inflation anymore. Aluminium <laughs> refractories, exactly. And what we don't have the money to pay for that, but we got the money to pay for all this. I mean, I don't know. I, it's just to me, it seems, um, it seems unbelievably convenient. And and as that the culture wars have just created this incredible sense of, like I would say, most people would point to the the way that the culture wars have basically taken over mainstream society yeah, and media. As a huge fucking distraction. Well, you could call it yeah, you would frame it as a huge fucking distraction. <laughs> <laughs> I I would I would I would too. With parts too. Of, with parts of genuine progress but got amplified to a degree that wasn't aligned with yeah. the actual progress. But yeah. We'll get yeah. into that. <laughs> but that, that, but that, you know, maybe we should talk more about that because that's kind of more interesting because, you know, because like a good example would be, you know, there's a lot of uh, women being abused is a big thing yes. on social yes. media and stuff at the moment, right? That's, well, and, that's know, something one, that I would say is a legitimate issue and a legitimate reckoning. So, like, I, I wouldn't want to conflate what I'm thinking of with that. No, definitely not. But, like, you know, it's it frustrates me that, you know, I don't think anything in regards to say pokey reform would have been trending in the bloody time yeah. that I've been alive. And I don't think anyone's yeah. anyone in media has, has has thought about say pokey reform. You know, since Ever. <laughs> since well, since Gillard, no, since it was a big political issue, since it was going to be serious federal reform yeah. into yeah. pokies, right? Now, you know, I if you are cross-check gambling and domestic violence, it's uh, it's enormous, right? Gambling destroys families, turns people to criminality, uh, and a lot of these uh, men who are suffering pokey addiction and gambling addiction end up creating an environment where they uh, abuse women in their lives. Now, it's totally unacceptable, but the point is if we stopped pillaging working-class disadvantaged communities with things like the pokies, with things like uh, 
this dysfunctional war on drugs. I mean, the relationship between drugs, drug abuse, and alcohol abuse, and how that correlates to men abusing the women in their lives is also unbelievably high. And these, and if we were able to get inside communities and implement reforms that improved the economic welfare and the negative consequences of these addictions, mm. we could massively, I think, improve more than anything else, I- improve outcomes for a lot of a lot of women. And of course, women who end up in really awful life situations, um, if they're addicted to um, drugs, alcohol, uh, pokies, they end up in awful situations. Everyone right. does who ends up in those situations, but we don't, you know, it doesn't like it doesn't seem to be like so so much of this. Uh, it's like we're sh- constantly. I feel like we're constantly shooting rubber bullets. You know, yeah. It's like I don't, I, don't, I don't understand. I I don't understand how people can't seem to see this incredible uh, disconnect between how well circulated and well established within the mainstream people's care for these issues is these social issues, but then there just doesn't seem to be any set of policies that correlates these issues to class and equity and then sees them being able to be successfully implemented. I mean, I understand how better educating boys at school will improve consent issues and sexual abuse issues, right? Like I see, I understand that, but I, I also then, if you actually check the data and you see the amount of abuse that happens to people in poor socioeconomic situations, it's unbelievably higher, right? And it's like- Yeah, and if you also, you know, you can manipulate the data in a way that that, that benefits a headline, but if you looked at, um, you know, like domestic violence as a broad category of, you know, partner violence and, um, you know, sibling violence and and, and all the various forms of, of violence- you would see that you know roughly roughly fifty percent of the victims also happen to be men. So it's almost like, you know, you you could frame it in a culture warry type of way and like pro women, pro trans, pro pro gay or whatever, because maybe that sells and maybe it's like it, 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 people get energized by it and people get en- people get energized by a headline or people get energized by you know some type of cultural issue because they see themselves on either you know pro or against. But does it, you know, is there is there a market for, you know, proper journalism that actually proposes reform that would actually solve the problem? Maybe that's a bit more nuanced and boring and a gray area that no newspaper really wants to touch because yeah, it's, who's going to sell exactly, that? Exactly. Exactly. It's not as simple as, and that's right. It's not as simple as being able to pick pick a side and get angry at someone. And again, this goes back to like, would it would it matter? You know, we can tie it back to Murdoch. Would it matter at all? If Murdoch mm-hmm. was there or if Murdoch was dispersed and the government right. came in and made him divvy it up or whatever, would that change the fact that media is always probably going to- be a bucking of the trend, yeah. Yes. Is, is, yeah. is media is always going to want to frame things <clears throat> in simple narratives with good characters and evil characters, bad sides and good sides, and also divert away from people having to consider real things, real inquiries, and understand that having a wanting to make a change in the world often involves- uh, trade-offs yeah. you know and you can't you can't just get all the good things about your social perspective right. without maybe having to pay a little bit more tax or maybe having a little bit less cheap things in the world because we're not polluting the environment as much or and right. and, and, yeah. and changes actually cost things you know yeah. and it's like you know you look at how unbelievably well circulated 
something like the invasion day uh, marches are and good you know like it's 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 a good thing that people are wanting to will this country to stop being uh, a denialistic about its history and be uh, so ineffective at delivering you know social opportunities for and economic opportunities for indigenous people but you know this when Rio Tinto or BHP or whatever destroy a sacred site yeah or when it violates or when the, land this, rights of, of tribes like, yeah why 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 isn't it just like every, why isn't my instagram as activated populated with that right as yeah as, as, as this christian porter yeah. stuff this christian porter stuff yes okay yeah. i believe it i believe it, i believe it good that's good but but why isn't the same energy like get you get your super money out of bhp get your super money out of out of out of rio they just destroyed the sacred site and that just massively propagate like yeah. why you know why why doesn't why doesn't the premier when he decides to build a fucking highway through mm-hmm. these sacred birthing trees get cancelled the hell out of mm-hmm. you know, why and it just it just seems it just seems that like i can think of very very few instances mm-hmm. where these massive levels of swelling fucking uh, well you know progressive political will results in some sort of reform that's like awesome i i, I yeah. can't think of i can't think of one yeah you know, I, that- I can think of people getting sacked people getting fired and some of those you know were probably good but i can't think of like a policy that's come into it i mean maybe it looks like in france they're about to pass some policy that's going to basically make any sex with, with a child under 15 non-consensual now that seems like a good policy that just passed so there's one i can't right. think of a i can't right. think of an australian example though yeah i and i would also touch on um seeing the blm movement in the states in canada in even in Australia, it got, it got heaps of publicity. You would get, you would get, you would get so much, so much performative energy, and good, good. There have been definitely some uh, racial issues that have been overlooked. There are still definitely some racial issues now that need to be addressed. But there is some very, very obvious, obvious uh, drivers of the racial inequality, and one of them is the war on drugs. Yeah, to what extent? Why- to what extent was the media discussion talking about a really d- genuine problem that was capable of solution? It was probably maybe one percent. Maybe you got a few uh, states. Who maybe the you hell got a knows? Few, yeah, like, I, I, I mean, it's, it's maybe tiny, you got a few that, states in, in yeah. America so, so who should, like reform marijuana laws. Yeah. But it's like, but fucking in in Canada, you had uh, you know these. These marches in 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 you know the um the town squares or whatever like the major streets throughout the city and you have Justin Trudeau participating in the march. There was a march about you know uh you know systemic racism and fighting the power and literally the the most powerful person in Canada is at the march. They're protesting against you. It's like you could be in there passing legislation that genuinely solves these problems and acknowledges it, but instead you you, you attend mm. the march. Yeah, or we could, you know, we what we could happened be Austra- after that? Yeah, yeah, but we could be we could be in Australia, for example. We could be, you know, uh, choosing to not pass these enormous tax cuts that are planned for the next five years and be grabbing all that money. This is in a world where there isn't infinite money, which apparently there is, but I don't know. <laughs> Normally we're told there isn't and there's all these trade-offs we need to make. Mm. And we could be choosing to pour shitloads of money into the disadvantaged community that is just always going to be over-policed, right? Mm. 
Mm. Like, so, you know, for example, we could permanently raise the doll, God forbid, you know? Yeah. And maybe that would create an environment where people would be um, just less exposed to criminality. You know, yeah. God forbid we decided to participate in some major drug reform where... Well, I but mean... again, it's like, well, what, is there a single... Yeah. I don't think there's a single policy outcome, at least in Victoria, as a consequence of the Black Lives Matter. And right. what I'd also say is that a couple of months after uh, he went and bulldozed the sacred sacred birthing trees, so <laughs> and I know I, I don't know how how Daniel Andrews did. So I don't know I don't know you know are they necessarily the same issue? Well, I I've, Indigenous Australians would absolutely probably say that it is. I don't right. want to speak for them, but they right. certainly the community can't believe their fucking sacred sites being smashed. Yeah, for a highway. Yeah, um, and just to provide yeah. some balance in that, I would say that if it's uh after having seen 12 months of government incompetence that if we are it, that if we can starve them of uh, of tax dollars by tax cuts i would say that's a good thing but um no like there is a sense that um I'm not giving those fuckers a cent um there is a sense that that you know you know, uh problems spoken about in the media are not uh, at all aligned with solutions and there's a complete disconnect in being performative on the one sense and appearing to be solving a problem and actually taking yeah, so action to exactly address right. it. Exactly right. So we and you know we're not so and this is you know we're just we're not saying that we're not in alignment with these issues, you know. It's like it's we're, we're just saying that there's that enormous disconnect. And mm-hmm. it seems to again support the idea that media regardless of how much it uh, portrays itself as anti-establishment doesn't seem to mobilize any establishment changing except for the incredible amount of change it has seemed to generate in the representation of people in art you know that seems to you, you cannot you just like you're, you're absolutely living under a rock if you think the yeah, certainly as as a musician, you know, it's just it's uh it's nonstop in terms of in terms of the way it's been able to make changes in that in that field, you know. And a lot of the good as thing in is racial lot- representation and gender representation in art. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And th- and, these people and- do they happen to be from potentially middle class backgrounds and potentially close to the high- <laughs> top of the hierarchy, or, or are we pulling yeah, these no, people c- out of housing projects no, and no, putting no, them so, on no, TV? No. Yeah, so no, so what what exactly right? So it's changed the way art's made yep. and it's changed the way you bill you you book an act and it's 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 changed uh who gets funding and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um but it definitely hasn't all of a sudden uh gotten all these poor disadvantaged people free music lessons and <laughs> yeah, yeah. free painting lessons <laughs> and all these extra scholarships and gotten them out of abusive environments so they're in opportunities to make art, you know, right. and all the rest of it. And correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So, look, I probably would say in, 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 you know, I certainly think in 10, 20 years is going to be a shitload more rock musicians that are female or trans. Yeah, um, and if that hasn't trickled down effects. I, I think no, I, I'd will really be. love to it's, touch... It's, touch on this in a completely other episode but continue anyway, all i'd say is it seems to have made really impactful changes mm-hmm. in terms of at least 
the way art is made now right. and what's it, what, what can be made and what can't be made, you know? Yeah. And how people, and, how be, and, and the way in which art is going to be consumed. But it's pretty sad that that's kind of all it's done, you know? And maybe yeah. also it's probably created an environment where people's willingness to report abuse and be supported in that is, mm-hmm. I think, changing too. I think there's, I think there's, there's, yeah. there's like, you, you know, that would be positive. If you were to sit there, I would say that. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, would say, I would say it's definitely positive. I think it's created, a, you know, and any kind of abuse, racial abuse, uh, sexual abuse, whatever, I think that has massively shifted and will keep getting better. But yeah, I don't think we've managed to get one single dollar out of the 1% and given it back to anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as soon as you have the the slogans of of grassroots movements being perfectly mirrored in the advertising slogans of the richest companies in the world, there's something that tells me that those companies aren't going to be paying for it. So is there any <laughs> no, that's right. So is there is there is there any solution to like other than people deciding to not be so short-sighted and ultimately selfish and that that's really what manifests these issues that we prescribe to be issues with the media? Is that, you know? So is there, is there anything we can do as, as people to, to meaningfully other than, push the envelope well, on these issues? Well, other than other than yeah, other than you know yeah, look like challenge challenge yourself to be, uh, like post being inspired and emotionally affected by a movement like Black Lives Matter, then like post that going oh what can I do, mm. you know or what who should I be voting for or what what should I read what should I look at what you know I, I yeah I. So, I just think that there would be that progress if, if um, you know, I've never seen an activist class that, that you know, implicitly and like subconsciously benefits so much from capitalism in my life. You know, the Instagram, the TikTok, um, the, the, you know, the Amazon orders of amazing things for your house are so tied to people who are, you know, intensely capitalist at heart in their actions and they don't really want the um you know solutions that they that they articulate i just think a lot of it i think if it is a genuine interest and if people did genuinely want to reform the system and if people genuinely did want to pay more tax i think it would be there but i think so much of it happens to be performative so much of it is driven by this you know percept this social media world that we live in of, of of being perceived as doing justice rather than actually wanting to do justice. And I think if you could change that, if you could change those ratios, you might you might get some actual fucking solutions. Yeah. So it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with Murdoch. You know? And that's and I think like I, I, I don't think so. No, no, no. And I just think Murdoch just exploits this big awesome well of human shitness to his advantage. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's the human, it's the human shitness that's, you know, and I, and you know, and the antidote to human shitness is probably reflection, inquiry, meditation, broadening your perspective, thinking about, you know, future generations, thinking about equity, and not not send, 
<laughs> the first step's not trusting what you read online or in a mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. a newspaper or yeah. on television. It's it's whether it's, it's the left wing paper that owns sixty percent or the right wing paper that owns fucking seventy percent of of the media. I think it's yeah. it's a complete. It's a you know a desire to to free think, a desire to be independent of 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 uh, any institution, any ideology, any party, anything that puts you into some type of category. I think if people can freely think, if people can realize that the media is just entertainment packages news, and if people can realize that like real change happens through educating people about genuine issues and, and, and I guess, you know, somewhat asking your politicians to actually move that move that grain or aligning the incentives for, you know, your Instagram post to actually policy being implemented. If people can understand like what actually pulls the pulls the levers of power, I think that's that's the recipe. I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.